Let's take time this morning to study a conversation. A conversation between two criminals and the king. Now let's try to answer three questions this morning. How far was Jesus willing to go to save sinners? How do you know whether or not you're saved? And what difference does your place in paradise make in the here and now? We'll say farewell to our middle schoolers as they head out to Sunday school. Please open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. And they'll be on the screen as well. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's cast our minds to Calvary. Conversation between a king, the king, with a criminal on his left and his right. The Romans were brutal. Extreme anguish is included in the reading of Luke 23. This conversation, as an aside, but it's really front and center for just a moment, will mean many things and we'll discuss it, but I want you to take this note. It fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Jesus, in his death, fulfilled this prophecy written 700 years before his birth. Quote, He would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah prophesying, the Lord inspiring, the Holy Spirit inspiring to to write this down. He says, quote, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. So how far was Jesus willing to go to save? He went to the cross. He bore the sin of many. He bore the the sins of the world. He intervened on behalf of guilty lawbreakers. That's how far he went. That's how low he could go. The message version on this prophecy puts it this way. That translation says, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest, He took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. He's the good shepherd, willing to leave the 99 to go after the one, to rescue lost sheep to the very ends of the earth, including members of a family who are regarded as disgraceful. That's what it means to be a black sheep. Are you a black sheep in your family? 
Well, what's, what's the latest with Uncle Henry? Oh, we don't talk about Uncle Henry. Well, well, how's your sister? I haven't spoken to her in years. They're the black sheep of the family. Still part of the family in name only, but they're not welcomed around here. The Lord Jesus went after the black sheep, the lost soul. That's how far he's willing to go. Do you remember where we began this sermon series, A Place for Everyone? We were looking at John chapter 10, where Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And then he said in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must go and bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. He was willing to go all the way to the cross. And as he's dying, carrying the sins of the world on his shoulder, soon to be separated from the Father, this eternal relationship with the Father he will be separated from, bearing the weight of God's wrath for what we've done. Even then, his heart of compassion is shown here for these lost souls. His concern, not for himself, but for one crucified with him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, second half says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Meaning, just, I don't care that I'm, I'm being ashamed here. That discording its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne. It was about nine in the morning, according to Mark chapter 15, when they crucified the king with a criminal on either side. Some of your translations say thief, some say robber, criminals. And a sign was hung over him uh, for the sake of mocking him that says, King of the Jews. He was ridiculed by the Jewish leaders. He was mocked by the soldiers. And he was made fun of. And the citizens of the anger, the, the hatred coming from the people and both these criminals. To stark contrast, Jesus doesn't respond in kind. His first words from the cross, and that would be a whole other sermon series, the seven last words of Christ. But the first word spoken was this, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Remember last time we were together, and I wanted to give a little bit of an aside about how you can study Scripture for yourself, and you can get the most out of your own study of God's word. And we talked about context, how context is so important. We looked at the story of the widow's offering, the widow's might. She gave two cents. And if you just take that scene, Jesus sees a, a woman who gives her last two pennies and he says some words about it. If you take that out of context, it has one meaning. But when you read the context, what happened just before, what happens just after, there's so much more. And so when we understand scripture, when you read scripture, you want to read it in context. Another lesson to take away is this. When you read scripture, you first and foremost use other scripture to translate scripture. So you read this passage. I've seen this. Where do I go first? 
to figure out what this might mean. In context, the larger understanding of, of God's word, let me look at other scripture. And that's what I do in preparing a sermon. That's what I did this week. So we have Luke's reporting of what happened, but then I need to look at what do the other gospel writers include? What was their perspective? What's their point of view? And so I looked at Matthew, Matthew 27, 44. It says this, the robbers, plural, the criminals, who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way, same way as the Jewish leaders and the Romans and the people. Also in Mark's gospel, 15, 32, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So along with the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers and the crowd, both criminals were, were heaping this insult on the Lord. Truly what they were doing is they were blaspheming the name of God. You say you save people. Save yourself and us if you are truly the one. Do you see where I'm going with this? Matthew and Mark report both criminals were blaspheming Jesus. Now Luke knows Matthew and he knows Mark. He, he's a smart guy. And he knows what they've written. And he reports Jesus' first words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then he has a change in what happens next. A change in the hearts of these two criminals, at least one of these criminals. Uh, both see the sign over his head, King of the Jews. Both mock Jesus at the beginning of that day. Both endure the same torture. Both are desperate to be saved. But at some point during the day, with Jesus on the cross between them, after Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, one of them continues to hurl insults, and one of them says, stop. The first thief has zero contrition or humility. He only sees Jesus as a means of escape from his cross. He didn't see him as king. He saw no authority or compassion in him, and certainly no purity. What happened with the second criminal? What changed? They both started the worst day of their miserable, no-good lives hating Jesus, and then hours later, one of them pleads and confesses Christ. So why did he change? What changed in his heart when the dire situation is being experienced by both of them? And it leads to the question, how do we know, how do you know whether or not you're saved? And I don't have all the answers, but I believe that when Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, the second man was included in the them. That I know for sure. Because the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, and that Holy Spirit had to work fast, right? This is a quick operation. Scalpel, boom, heart of stone removed. It could have been when he saw the way Jesus handled literally insult added to injury. If there was ever 
the definition of insult added to injury is our Lord hanging on a cross with the people hurling all that hate. Maybe it was seeing the way he handled that, the dignity with which he confronted that. And in the midst of that, he was able to say stop to the other one. And he stopped himself. Even when everyone's egging him on, the one thing that these criminals have in common with all the good people is they all hate Jesus, and this man stops. You know, the strong popular opinion around us and around you criticizes your faith in Jesus, shows only contempt, and that contempt for our faith is growing louder and louder by the day. And some people are easily swayed by popular opinion. Some of us here are easily swayed by the people around us, people that that we work with, we go to school with, we trust by their strong opinion. We don't tell them to stop. Who said anything about witnessing to anybody or, or handing out Bible? We just don't even say stop, do we? Our Lord's name is taken and misused and mistreated. We just keep watching. Thanksgiving table. You'll be there with your family. And something will be said from the table that is a direct insult of the living God. I'll just keep eating my peas. Or will you be bold enough in that scary moment that might ruin the pumpkin pie to say, please stop, not at the dinner table, that's inappropriate. This man hanging on a cross has a very unique perspective, doesn't he? So close to the source of life and light. The first criminal rails, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And then we start to see the, the change in the second criminal. I want you to pay attention to this because this will answer the question, am I saved or not? It will answer that question. First, he tells him to stop. Then he says, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? That's what put a stop to him. You know, it says there's no honor among thieves. And I'm jumping to the conclusion that they were probably partners. I would imagine they they knew one another. Maybe they were partners in crime. There's no honor among thieves. Yet all of a sudden, this man cares about the soul, the eternal soul of the other one. Don't you fear God? Your wicked contempt will get you into worse trouble, man. This is the first evidence of grace, of a changed heart. When you start caring about other people's eternal souls, when you care about other people's eternity. That's an evidence that God has done a work of grace to save you. Second, number two, he admits his own guilt and Jesus's innocence. Look at verse 41. He says, we are being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. He admits he deserves the punishment he's receiving. Do we admit that we deserve punishment? How easy do we just excuse our own behavior? Well, those people, yeah. Whew. But not, not, not me. 
We're seeing a conversation here of new life in the most terrible place imaginable. See how far Jesus went. And here we see the divine providence of perhaps the worst situation imaginable being the very place of one's salvation. Do you see that? Say, Lord, my life has been so difficult. Yes, imagine being on a cross, and that's the divine appointment, the last appointment that the Lord Jesus takes in his three-year ministry. There's no excuses. He owns his own sin, his own junk, and he says, this man's done nothing wrong. And we have it so, so easy, and yet in our ease, we easily excuse ourselves. Yeah, this man says, I'm guilty, he's innocent, he doesn't deserve to be here on this cross, he's done nothing wrong. That's another mark of grace, that's the second mark of grace. Third, look at verse 42, he says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a plea for help and a confession of faith. How is it a confession of faith? He says, Jesus, remember me when, I come, when you come into your kingdom. A kingdom has a king. So he's confessing King Jesus. And what is he saying? He's not saying, you're the king. Get me out of here. Get me off this cross, please. I'll follow you now. Just get me down and give me some, some bandages. He says, he knows it's over. He knows it's over, finished. But he knows what's coming is for eternity. He says, remember me. It's about relationship. Our faith is about being relating to God. Remember me. We want to be near God. That's what God wanted to be near to his creation, to his people. That's what the garden was. That's what the tabernacle was, to tabernacle with his people. The Lord wants to dwell with his people. He wants to have us to himself. And this man says, Remember me in your kingdom. So how do you know whether or not you're saved? Super important question. Because not every conver- uh, conversion experience is going to be as dramatic, will it? I, have, I would venture to, to guess none of us here or any of you watching at home have had nearly the kind of conversion experience that we're reading here in Scripture but you don't have to have quite such a dramatic experience or testimony to see evidence of saving grace. So will I know if you're saved? Here are a couple things you could ask yourself, and only you can answer. I can't answer it for you. Do you care about the souls of others? Do you you really care about the eternity of your fellow man? Do you humbly see and confess your own sin? And do you embrace Jesus? Trust him, believe in him. These are relational, trusting words of faith. These are the marks of God's grace in your life. Evidence of grace, of of salvation. Today, here and now, where you sit and where you watch. If you answer yes to these questions, when you're driving home today, and you get hit by a Mack truck, why is it always a Mack truck? There's other kinds, like Peterbilt trucks, like Volvo. When you get hit by that driverless Tesla truck in a couple of years, do you believe that today I will be 
with Jesus in paradise? Can you answer that question? May God grant you faith to believe. So what difference does your place in paradise make in the here and now? It makes all the difference in the world. The, the result of this repentant man, repentance man's faith, the simple nature of it, of just asking Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, so close to dying, then Jesus responds with the most staggering, beautiful promise. Look at verse 43. He answered him, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Three words. Underline, circle, highlight. What? Three words. When? When? Today. Jesus conquered sin and death. When? On that day. When did I get saved? On that day. And he promises his saints aren't simply in some waiting room. Like, we're not just in some holding power, like, take your ticket. You're just waiting around. There's some nebulous thing. He says, in reality, as we are waiting in this reality for his return, his final return of the king, which will come very soon, we are one day closer to it. Those who have died are now present with the Lord. They are present with the Lord today. We don't like to talk about death, and most of us um, have not been too close to death. We don't even know where our chicken comes from, do we? You just pick up a package. You don't know how that chicken got from the chicken coop to Fred Meyer, do we? And we don't, many of us don't have a lot of experience with death. What happens when we die? How do you know you're dead? Well, the medical examiner will examine a body. We can get kind of, you know, a little bit more macabre, a forensic pathologist at a crime scene. How do they determine time of death? They, they take the temperature and uh, every hour, the body temperature drops by about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit. What's the time of new life when you die? Today. If you die in Christ, it's today. Jesus says, I will remember you not then, but today. Todd Goldsmith, Elder Todd Goldsmith, we met yesterday, our session Saturday. We meet every other month for, for a morning of prayer, fellowship, conversation and more prayer. And Todd said something really, really fascinating. He, he referenced an old Chinese proverb that said, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now, is today. Today, you'll be where? With me. It's the second word, with me. Not floating in the sky in the sweet by and by. You will be with me, the Lord Jesus says, you will be with God. Irreligious people want to have some concept or belief in heaven, in the good place. They want it without a king. Do you take Jesus at his word? He says, by faith alone, when you die, if you believe in me and trust in me, you will be with me. And every one of you needs to make your own choice in that. Today, you'll be with me, third word, in paradise. The moment a believer dies, they are in paradise before the final resurrection. Uh, imagine the hope that that gave this man, even as he saw his now Lord die beside him. He's hanging on a cross, this criminal, now a saint, 
and he sees the one he's put his eternal trust in give up his spirit. He says the seven words and he, Father, I commit my spirit to you and Jesus is gone. Between that time and the time when the Roman soldiers come and they break his leg so that the the criminals will fall and sag and suffocate, he has hope, lasting hope. How much more hope ought you and I have of all the promises that we know spoken by Jesus into our lives? Father, forgive them. Prayer answered. The difference your place in paradise makes here and now is that hope, is that security, and it's also the gospel being activated in your life, in your habits, in your choices, in your decision-making. The gospel activity, the urgency, the opportunity we have for the days, hours, minutes we have left on God's green earth. No moral resume is required to be finally accepted into heaven. All that's required is open acknowledgement of our sin, trusting faith in Christ, believing on him for salvation. Without the cross preached regularly in my life, I'm tempted to slip back away from understanding of God's grace and think, well, yeah, that happened, but also I'm a pretty good guy. Yes, yes and amen on Sunday we sang about that, but I'm a pretty nice person. I've done a lot of good things. I've given a lot away. I've helped people. I've built a resume. You see how we can, that thinking can start to slip in? Friends, that is not grace. So if you die today, you can pick the vehicle of your choice. You get hit by a Schwinn bicycle. What would you say when you get to the pearly gates? You come up to the reservation table, and, or just imagine, right? The angel's there. May I help you? Yeah, I think that I'm on the list. Um, hmm. And uh, why should you be let in? And what would you say? Why should you be let in? Now, if you start with, well, I, you already gone off trail. Thank you, Alistair Beck, for this insight. When you, if you start with, well, because I believed, and I, I trusted, and I was, you already have gone off the rails and away from the gospel. The answer has to be in the third person, because he, because he, he did something. Just, we're just playing, we're just imagining, just use our creativity, our imagination of the pearly gates, What was it like when the thief showed up at the pearly gates? I I can't wait to ask him, like, dude, how did this happen? You were were miserable. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, you were, yeah, this must have been bad. Oh, it was really, really bad. What, What was that like? I mean, can you imagine? What would that conversation look like? He walks up to the reservation table. And the angel says, uh, uh, what are you doing here? I don't know. Well, how did you get to the pearly gates of paradise? Uh, I don't know. 
Okay, well, let's see here. Did you live a good life? I can see you did not live. I, no, I did not live a good life at all. Did you, uh, did you ever go to synagogue? Did you say God's word? Like, no, actually, I was a pretty terrible person, kind of a wretch. Yeah, okay, so I'm not even going to ask if you, you know, read your Bible or we're not even going to go there. So on what basis should you be allowed into the king's kingdom? And how will he answer? Because the man in the mill invited me. That's the only answer. Friends, that is the only answer. And, and if I don't preach it to myself every day, I'll start to trust myself. I'll start to focus on myself. I'll start thinking that my personal independence, my personal self-expression is the most important thing in the world. How I feel about things, what I want, what I desire is the most important thing. It hurts me. You're triggering me. And so I can't possibly be led this way. No, I think of it this way. I think this is how the world works. Rather than seeing what is really real and cuts through all the noise and all the chatter and all the cultural conditioning of living in a particular place and a particular time in this century. We take our eyes off the cross. The worst of it is not just a self-delusion. It's paying lip service to the sacrifice of our Lord and his calling in your life. I cast my eyes to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. We're going to sing a song in just a moment of, of thanking him for his blood applied to us, for you, for me, for you, and for you, and for you, and for the world. Because of how far he went to finish the work, I would challenge you this day to refocus your thoughts on Christ. And so we can see more evidence of grace in our life. We think, well, I want to see more evidence of, of grace in my life. I want to see it more. I want more grace. You know how you can see more evidence of grace? Show grace to other people. Let's start showing more and more grace to other people. And then maybe, just maybe, in this crazy, mixed-up world where chicken costs $11 for a package now. Wherever it comes from, I don't know, but it's expensive. Maybe, just maybe, we'll make a little bit more room in our heart, a little bit more room at the table, a little more room in your small group, and indeed more room in our church to say, there is a place for everyone and there's a place for you, and I invite you to come and see and experience new life. Let's close in prayer. Invite Brian and the team to come up. Lord Jesus, you went to the other, utter extreme. We confess in the Apostles' Creed, you went down, all the way down, only to rise again, to ascend, and now to be in session, seated at your Father's side. Lord, may we see the evidence. We have seen that song of, 
I see the evidence of your grace all around me, all over my life. May we see it, Lord, and may we be used by you instruments of your grace to show it, to express it lavishly on other people. And Lord, may we again be reminded that it's not what we've done, it's not our resume, it's what you have done and what you've accomplished, that that hope, that security, that gospel enacted in our lives will be evident this day, the weeks and months to come, years to come, or even in just the minutes we have left here on, on planet Earth. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for, for the blood. We thank you for this fellowship of saints. Amen.